guess, of David. But one of the concepts as we look at Saul and David that the scripture clearly lays out for us is that Saul was a man after his own heart. His focus was himself. At one time in the beginning for Saul, as he was called of God, you know, he, he, was, he, he thought himself unworthy of the call. He thought himself that he didn't have the ability to be a king, to lead the people, to do the things that, that God wanted him to do. And he was really pressing into God and his power and his might and glorifying God. And when the people were shouting about the victories that they were having, they were shouting to Saul and Saul say, not me, the Lord, man, shout to the Lord, it's God. But later on, when the people would shout about the victories in the Lord, Saul would, you know, stand a little taller. To the point with the last victory that he had against the uh, Amalekites, as the Lord laid out for him to go and wipe them all out, he, he keeps King uh, Agag, but he also goes to Mount Carmel and builds a monument to himself. Because he's so great, you know, he won the victory. But he was disobedient to the Lord. And God had said, you know what, I'm going to seek a king that's a man after my own heart. And when we consider that concept, that idea, and as we see tonight the anointing of David to be that king, the king who is a man after God's own heart, sometimes we get the idea that that somehow eludes us or our ability to reach out and grasp the concept of being a man after God's own heart. And simply, all that's necessary in it is being someone that's more concerned with obeying, pleasing, honoring our Father in heaven than they are with receiving the accolades of the people. I mean, really, when we look at the Scriptures, we can find many people, most called by God, to go and, and share His Word that we could say they're men after God's own heart. There's one that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. And that we know that that concept, that phrase, it didn't mean somebody who was perfect. Right? You're not going to be able to, to tell me David's perfect. You're not going to be able to tell me he's not a sinner. I mean, he sins in, in, in every way imaginable of every other king that comes after him. What set him apart is when he fell, when he stumbled, the Bible lays out for us in Proverbs, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. The point isn't that he fell. The point is that he doesn't stay on the ground, doesn't stay out of the battle. He rises again and confesses his sins to the Lord, and the Lord forgives him. He doesn't make excuses like Saul did. When Saul fell, he blamed it on everybody else, right? Well, I mean, when we go back to Genesis, don't we see the same thing? When the, at the fall of Adam, Adam says it's Eve's fault. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. The serpent doesn't have anybody else to blame. It's the end of the line. So when we look, we see that it's man's natural tendency to blame somebody else for where they're at. But when you look at David, and we see as we continue our study through David, we come to that point when Nathan the prophet tells him that story about the, the man's little ewe lamb that was his pet and his rich neighbor who killed it. And, and David says, that man should die and pay back four times what he's taken. And he goes through all that, and Nathan points at him and says, David, you're the man. David doesn't make an excuse. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And he repents. He calls out upon the Lord God. He is a man after God's own heart. What is it that God calls us to be? We, we, we can convolute this so much. We can talk about all these other things. But the scripture is very clear. The Lord says, this is what I want. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to take these commandments that I've given you and teach them to your children so they learn to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we would have that relationship. That's what it is to be a man after God's heart. What is it that God desires from us? A loving relationship, the same love with which He's poured out on us. We love Him not because we originate that love, but because He first loved us. We respond and when we respond, when we become a man or woman whose primary concern is honoring the Lord, I think we become a man or woman after God's own heart. Living our life for Him. 
I shared last time, a lot of people, when we do study through Genesis and we talk about Joseph, a lot of people want to bust Joseph's chops and say, you know, he's a tattletale. He's telling his dad what his brothers are doing. Well, this is what I say. He cared more about how things looked to his father than he cared about how they looked to his brother. It was more important to Joseph to honor his father than it was to honor his brothers. And I think there's a real picture in that for us in a relationship with God in a, in a, in a, in a personal relationship with the creator of the universe that we recognize, man, I want to honor him. I want him above all things. What did Jesus say? He said, I mean, it's a difficult scripture to wrap your mind around. He said, unless you hate your father and mother, you're not fit for the kingdom. What's he mean by that? I mean, honestly, what he's laying out for us is this concept that unless God is the primary love of your life, you're missing the boat. Now, he's not calling us to hate our father and mother. He's saying he wants us to love him the most. To the point, to the exclusion of of all other things in our life, that he's that, he's the thing. He's the the one to whom we look. He's the one to whom we receive guidance. He's the one whom we want to please. We think of him first. He told us that way back in Deuteronomy. He told us in Matthew, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Right? And his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. But what should your primary concern be? The Lord. The Lord. Man after God's own heart. And maybe we get some hints into what, uh, what took David down that road. What brought David to that place as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. As we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16 this, uh, this evening, as we just seek that direction from the Lord as we open up his word, we want God to open up our eyes to receive what he has for us. And he says in chapter 16 verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Samuel is a godly leader of the nation of Israel. He was doing things right. The nation of Israel said, we don't want to follow you, Samuel. You're getting old and you're going to die any day. And since you're going to die any day, we want to have somebody that we can get behind. You know, we want to have that good leader. We want to have our own king. Up until that time, God had been their king. The Lord says, well, listen, the people have rejected me. I'll I'll give them a king. And he chooses for them Saul. We see Saul start so well, but end so poorly. And his decline is still going to continue. Once we begin to step away from that right relationship with God, where we're honoring the Lord, and we begin to step into a relationship where we are honoring ourselves, it's not very long before we become a despot, just like any of the world leaders you can look at today, whose primary concern is not anything else but themselves. And that's what Saul became. And Samuel's brokenhearted. Samuel had seen the possibilities that Saul had. Now I want you to consider for a moment. Saul had the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life a guarantee for success? If it was, he would be successful, right? The Holy Spirit came upon Saul. There's no question And in our lives, don't we have the power of the Holy Spirit? The same power that raised God from the dead, that raised Christ, that ascended to the Father, the same power that, with which he did the miracles that he did, the Bible says the same power is within us. Is it a guarantee of success? But everything we need for success is with us. Everything that Saul needed for success, he had. Everything that he needed, God gave him. But you and I and and Saul, we have to come to the point where we choose to walk in God's ways. Where we choose to submit ourselves to the power of the Spirit. Have you ever felt the Spirit speak to your heart to do something and not done it? I, I know I have. I know I felt God's leading or direction to do something and, I, and for whatever reason I talked myself out of it. Now, I don't know what I missed out in that opportunity. I know that God's not dependent on me. He will accomplish his will if I 
don't answer. He, there's someone else waiting to take that to take that victory. God is sovereign. But I have the opportunity, the ability to either walk with him or not. Don't I? Well, there are some who would say, no, no, no. God is so in control and so sovereign, you don't have any choice. You don't have that ability. Well, I got a couple of questions. Deuteronomy chapter 19. God brought the entire nation of Israel down into a valley. He put the priests up on that hill, and he put priests up on that hill. And the priests on this hill shouted down the cursing. And the priests on that hill shouted down the blessing. And then they stood, Moses stood before him and said, You have place before you today. Blessing and cursing. Life and death. You know what he said next? Choose life. Why did he say that if we don't have the ability to choose whether or not to be submissive to God and allow him to work in our life? When we come to the end of Joshua's life, Joshua chapter 24, and Joshua lays out for the children of Israel the same kind of a concept. He gives them their history. He tells them all the stuff that they've been through. And he says, if you think it's evil this day to serve the Lord, I don't know, it's up to you, but choose this day. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. But he told them what? Choose this day whom you will serve. But see, we need to make that choice every morning, don't we? Every morning when I wake up, I got an opportunity to either choose to live my life for the Lord like a man after God's own heart, or choose to live my life for myself and my own desires. But the power to be successful, the power to be a man or woman after God's own heart, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit is within you, the power is there to give you the victory to be everything that God wants you to be, just like it was for Saul. We just have to apprehend it. We just have to be willing. God does all the work. I don't deserve any victory for any of it. It's God who does it all. I just open my heart to it. I just, I just acknowledge that it's there. I just acknowledge and take out and walk and do the things that God wants me to do. Saul had every opportunity to be successful. But he would not. Esau, he didn't have to despise his birthright. But he did. Throughout scripture, we see that concept. We have the tools. All that's left for us is to make the decision. To make the decision that I'm going to be, I desire, I want to be man after God's own heart. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? The scripture lays out for us a a concept, that concept of a reward system, that when we get to heaven, there will be rewards, crowns. This Bible specifically speaks of five different crowns that will be given to the believer, uh, depending on where they're at and what they do here on earth when they serve the Lord, when they arrive in heaven. Why would he give us rewards if we didn't have the ability to choose whether or not to do things? Doesn't make any sense. We have that. We have the tools of success in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, living and powerful, that we can choose to be a part of every day. And when we wake up in the morning, I need to choose today that I'm going to serve the Lord. And when the day goes south, praise God that His mercies are new every morning because He's going to give me a new morning the next day, right? And another opportunity for me to say, today, I choose to serve the Lord, to follow Him, to be a man Or woman after God's own heart. Man, we want to be that. Well, here we see Samuel. He's caught in a rut, man. He's mourning the loss of of Saul. But listen, we have to understand God is not at a loss. God was not in heaven going, oh my word, what am I going to do? Saul has failed. It wasn't a surprise to God. In fact, God already had another man. The plans of God will not be foiled by mankind. They cannot, they will not. God's will will be done. He will accomplish that will despite us. Who misses out is you and I. 
on being a part or being what God had or accomplishing what God had for us for that day. Here he's mourning, he's sorrowful, his heart is, is breaking for him. But the Lord says, I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. So fill your horn with oil and go. Now Samuel's a prophet of God. Man, God says, Samuel, fill up your horn with oil. Oh, the scripture, throughout the scripture, that signifies the Holy Spirit. And they did things different. The horn that they filled up was a, was a horn about this long. It was curved, single curved, not like the, the shofar that you blow, although you can still blow these kind of horns as well. It's a, it's a, 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 a shorter horn closed off on one end and they'd fill it with oil. And they would take that oil and when they, when they came upon the anointing of the priest or the anointing of the king or the anointing of a prophet, they would open it up and pour it out. And they didn't just, you know, put a couple of drops. You got the whole horn, all the oil, symbolizing all the power that was necessary. And when you read scriptures, you go look yourself. Read the scriptures when the anointing and the oil was poured out. How many times the scripture lays out for us? And the Holy Spirit empowered. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The Holy Spirit filled him. Well, let's check it out. So he goes on. He says, I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. God raises up kings. God, it's God who rules over kingdoms. It's God who is still ruling over our nation. It is God who will raise up the next president. Does that mean I shouldn't vote? No. I've told you how this works a number of times. I think you will have to give account. I think, I believe, I will give account for the freedom that God gave me to vote. That my voting record, if you will, will be laid open before the Lord. And he'll say, now, where did you cast yours? Who were you behind? God's king? Man's king? Where did you, where did you line up? Man, I, I want to utilize the rights that the men and women who went before me earned wrought for me but it doesn't change the truth that daniel chapter 4 verse 17 says that it's god who raises up the kings and brings down kingdoms god is in control the heart of the king is in the hands of god proverbs lays it out for us it also gives us the concept that the nation receives the king they deserve so how, how are we supposed to change our surroundings? Is it by simply putting a Republican in the presidency? Is that going to solve all the problems? We've had Republicans before. I'm not sure that we always had revival when we had a Republican. What's going to change when God's people humble themselves and pray? When they confess their sins. And they turn toward the Lord, everything changes. Anything short of that will receive what we what we ask for, in essence. What we desire. Well, the Lord says, Here, I have a king. I have somebody that I've raised up. So Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. Now we see in Samuel this incredibly brave prayer warrior of God, this prophet, he's a little bit uptight about Saul because, well, we'll see in a few verses why, but he says he's going to want to kill me. So the Lord says, take a heifer with you and offer him as a sacrifice. Say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you will do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And why did they say that? You guys remember where we left off last time? The last time the people had seen him, Samuel had come to see Saul. Saul had sinned. He says, Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Saul says, I have obeyed the Lord, remember? And Samuel says, What's the bleeding of sheep I hear in the background? Because he was supposed to kill all the sheep. And he says, Oh, yeah, it was the people's fault. And then he presents before him King Agag. 
Remember? And King Agag comes walking up to Samuel thinking, hey, the worst is over. He's probably going to turn me loose. And Samuel grabs a sword and hacks him up into little pieces. That's the last time the people saw Samuel. So now Samuel shows up in Bethlehem and the people are like, which Samuel is this? The Samuel with the sword? Or the Samuel who prays for us? Is this the Samuel? You know what I'm saying? Which one? Did we do something wrong? Is he here to chop one of us into little pieces? So it says here, Samuel responds. He said, peaceably I come. I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel comes to Jesse, tells Jesse, hey, I'm doing a sacrifice. Tells the other uh, uh, Bethlehemites, we're going to have a sacrifice. Everybody sanctify yourselves, come to the sacrifice. Keep in mind, the sacrifice in those days, and especially the one that he's offering, is in essence a giant barbecue with the Lord. He's offering a heifer. Part of that offering is going to go to the, to the priests that are there in Bethlehem. Part of that offering is going to go to Samuel and the men that he's invited to, to be able to eat. And part of that offering is going to be burned up to the Lord. The concept of this sacrifice was that you were dining together with the Lord. That you were giving your best to him. That what was the Lord was totally consumed. And then there was that time of fellowship, sweet fellowship among the brethren. So they're gathered in this place to have fellowship. And he says to Jesse, bring your sons. Now in the Hebrew, he's laying it out for him. I want you to bring all your sons. And he's probably laid out for Jesse, something special is going to happen. Now, I want you guys to picture, this is not necessarily like we look at a potluck today. This is like the prophet of the nation of Israel. Everybody knows this guy. It's like the most popular of all that you could imagine coming to your town. And then coming up to this family that doesn't, he doesn't even really know knows him and saying, hey, you're the guest of honor and I want to make sure all your sons come. It was a big deal. Big deal that the prophet is there. Big deal that these things are going on. So he lays it out to them. And so it says in verse 6, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Well, Eliab was his oldest boy. And as Jesse's oldest boy passes before Samuel, when they would come into the place of the sacrifice, they would all meet that guest of honor. And as they would meet the guest of honor, they would come up to, to Samuel and he would meet Jesse. And then Jesse would say, my oldest son. And they, one by one, they're all going to pass before him. And when he sees the oldest, he's like, this is the guy. Well, that's pretty much how they pick Saul, right? Head and shoulders above everybody else. More, there wasn't a more handsome guy in all of Israel. I mean, he looked the part. And that's the same way that we see uh, Samuel looking at Eliab. But verse 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see like man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. God sees what's inside a man. The scripture lays out for us that Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's a Hebrew idiom for choose. Jacob I have chosen, speaking of the nation, Jacob I have chosen. Esau, the nation, the Edomites, I have not. I chose Jacob. The scripture tells us that <clears throat> that's done according to his foreknowledge. What's his foreknowledge say? He knows that Jacob is what? A man after God's heart. He cared about the things of God. Was he a good man? Was he perfect? No, not by a long shot. Neither was David. But God mattered to him. To Esau, the Edomites, God didn't matter. The Lord judges the heart. He knew the heart of Jacob before he was born. Did he know the heart of David before he was born? Sure he did. What about Jeremiah? Did he know the heart of Jeremiah before Jeremiah was born? The Bible says that he ordained Jeremiah a prophet to the nations from the womb. Before he was born. God doesn't judge on the outside. 
You and I, we would look at somebody and maybe we'd look at the degrees that they carry or how they carry themselves or the way that they speak or a number of things that we may look at that cause us to say, man, that is somebody that God can really use. But God says here to Samuel, I don't look at people that way. I want to know what's in his heart. How did Paul put it? Not many wise are called. Not many noble. But God uses the foolish things to confound the wise the weak to overcome the strong it seems as we look throughout scripture that god's desire in men is not his own physical prowess but his own ability to rely on the lord to give the victory we know that david is a mighty man of valor right in a in a chapter or two we're going to hear saul has killed his thousands and david his tens of thousands David was was an enigma. He was a guy who was into music, who played the harp, who wrote songs, who wrote poetry, and at the same time was proficient with the sword, was brutal in the battle. But he was a poet. He was a man who, who would weep freely before God, before his soldiers. But the same guy that them soldiers would follow to the gates of hell with a bucket of water. I mean, that's, that, to me, that's an enigma. It's not because of his incredible strength. It's because of his heart toward the Lord that made him such a great leader. That made him a man that they would all follow. And he had all of these things within him. All of these issues within him. So many times the Lord would choose Moses to be his spokesman, but Moses had a problem with his speech, right? He said, I'm dull of tongue. My tongue's thick. Most commentators think he's talking about having a stuttering problem. But yet God calls him. God raises him up and he delivers the people. Amazing stories. He, he comes to Gideon and calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. But where was Gideon? Hiding in the bottom of a hole, hoping nobody could see him. But God knew what he was capable when he surrendered to the power of God. Not many wise, not many noble, not many st- strong. Paul would say it like this. Paul would go on to say that he was afflicted by the thorn in his flesh, right? Everybody remember the the scripture? He has a thorn in his flesh. And three times he cried out to the Lord and he said, Lord, deliver me from this thorn. You know, take it away. A messenger of Satan, Paul said, to buffet my flesh. And three times God said, no. For my strength, is made perfect in your weakness. And the Lord doesn't see like we see, does he? He doesn't see the same way. He doesn't value the, the same things. He says, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, the Lord says, these I will not despise. Who wrote those words? David. Because he understood The thing that the Lord desired is a man that would be broken before him. The scripture tells us that there is a stone not made with hands in the heavens, right? This cornerstone that symbolizes Jesus Christ. The very same stone that smashes the the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and destroys it and, and encompasses or grows to fill the whole earth. In the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the Bible says either you will fall and be broken upon the stone or the stone will fall upon you and crush you but one or the other i much rather be broken before my lord and allow god to do that perfect work to raise us up samuel's getting a lesson from the lord i don't judge men like you judge them i see the heart i see the inside so jesse called abinadab abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. So again, his next born. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Nope, this isn't the one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. His three sons now have gone by. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now at this point, Samuel's a little confused. 
Because here the prophet of the nation Israel just told you to make sure you and all your sons come to the feast. And you've introduced all your sons to him as they've entered into this place to take their place at the feast or at the sacrifice and the feast to follow. And, and none of them are the one. Lord, you said one of his sons. You're assuming all the sons are there, right? I mean, you did tell him to bring his sons. But we know from the story, one's missing, right? Listen, the scripture lays it out for us. So Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. Now, you and I, we may not think much of that. But then we'd be missing a big part of the story. That phrase, there remains the youngest in the Hebrew, means that his father did not esteem him at all. He looked at him so low that he gave him the lowest of all the jobs within the family. In fact, most families would have the servants keep the sheep. But he has his youngest do it. Well, he's just the youngest. All the pride in that, in that society was in your firstborn. Right? I mean, everybody knows. It's a firstborn. It's a firstborn. That's why, how many times in Scripture does the Lord choose the second? And then call him the, the firstborn, the preeminent one. Jacob was secondborn. Isaac was secondborn. So here we have this, this one, this man after God's own heart, but he is not esteemed by his own. In essence, you could say, his own esteemed him not. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. Ah, it's just the shepherd boy. The shepherd boy who becomes the shepherd king. Comes the greatest king that Israel ever had until Christ sits on the throne. His father didn't esteem him. Maybe the whole time growing up, you know, it's like, why can't you be more like your big brother Eliab? Strong, strapping young man. The next chapter, we're going to see all his brothers go away to war. But David didn't go. They didn't want David. We'll see at the end of this chapter, the only way they really wanted him was to play his, his harp. Play the harp and sing some songs. They didn't really think much of him as a warrior. But by the end of chapter 17, they're going to realize little is much in the hands of God, isn't it? Anyone, everyone, anyone submitted to the power of God working in their life can do so much more than we can even begin to imagine when they are surrendered to what God wants to do in their life. He says, oh, he's out there with the sheep. He's out there with the sheep. The prophets later on are going to say that concept of a shepherd is going to be the exact picture of what a king is supposed to be. A shepherd to shepherd my people. My people are like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that what Jesus said? There's no one to lead them. There's no king. There's no, there's no one that they're going to follow. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the Sheep. And the picture continues throughout Scripture. Well, he goes on and says, Samuel said to Jesse, So send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. We are not going to eat until he gets here. Now, everybody's there, the whole town. All of Jesse's other kids are there. There's one guy who didn't get invited to the party. David. He's out with the sheep. And he don't seem too upset about it. He was okay being out there. Maybe this is where David, you know, as David penned so many of the Psalms, maybe this is where he wrote Psalm 27. Why don't you flip over there with me and let's just take a look at the 27th Psalm. He says, the Lord is my light. In my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Well, in chapter 17, he's going to talk about a time when a, a bear and a lion try to take the sheep. The enemies have come against me to try to eat up my flesh. Goliath is going to come against him throughout his life. He's going to spend close to 25 years waiting for the kingdom that is promised to him on chapter 16. And so he's going to spend 10 years running and living in caves. He says, though an army may encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war may rise against me. In this I will be confident. Chapter 17, he's going to face the entire Philistine army with a one giant standing in front of him. He says, I'm not going to be afraid. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that I will seek. There's one thing that God wants. Remember we talked about it in the beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the one thing I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he will hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he will hide me. He will set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. Yes, and I will sing. I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. And when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. And there's two things we know when we study scripture. God wants us to seek him. One second thing, God wants to be found. He's not playing hide and seek like sometimes we, he plays hide and seek with us like we play with our children. You know, we're still sitting in the lazy boy when they get done counting. He says, I want you to seek me. I want you to seek me. I want you to desire to come before me. But at the same time, he wants to reveal himself to us. So my heart said, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Look at verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Dad didn't think enough about him to invite him to the biggest thing that had hit the shores of Bethlehem in a coon's age. Didn't even think about bringing him. But he says, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord's there. God's with me. The Lord will take care of me. So teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Well, the psalmist goes on and on t- telling us about the things that he learned in the time that he spent with the sheep. There's never a time in our lives that God cannot reveal himself to us. In fact, the prophet would say, do not despise the day of small beginnings. The Lord would say, in Matthew chapter 25, you have been faithful in a few things. I will make you master of many. Be faithful in those little things. He was a faithful shepherd. And God is going to make him king. Joseph was a faithful guy who worked in the prison. Right? His life was going downhill ever since his brother sold him into slavery. Nonetheless, he was God's man. God was raising him up to deliver his people. Same with David. So it says in verse 12, So he sat and brought him in, and he was ready. Now you can read a hundred different ideas about what that means. So let me tell you a quick thing about understanding the Bible. If there's a hundred different things about what that means, it means people don't really know what that means. If they knew what it meant, there'd be one thing everybody was talking about. Ruddy, in the, in the Hebrew, literally it means red. It's very closely tied to the, to the name of Esau. Well, what did that mean? Esau was red. Some people say he was hairy. People say he was earthy. You know, I don't know. Uh, he's ruddy. That's how, that's how King James decided to, to put it together. It's as good a name as any. He's ruddy with bright eyes. It means he was intelligent. He had an intelligence about him. And so he had this intelligence, and he was, he's good looking. You know, it's not like his brother Eliab, not like Saul, 
know, he's our eyes. He don't hurt the eyes to look at him, but he's ready. Red. Some people say he had red hair. Some people say he had fair skin. I don't know. It's something. He's something. He's something that, 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 that works around red, whatever it was. Red, ruddy, bright eyes, good looking. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Listen to this. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The least of all of his children is going to be anointed by the most powerful prophet the nation had known in the past 400 years. This is a big deal. And he's going to anoint him right there in the front of everybody. In the middle of all his brothers. But who else is there? The rest of Bethlehem. That's all. It's the rest of the town. Here's this little shepherd boy that nobody really thinks much of. And nobody really understands what's going on but Samuel. Samuel knows what's going on. And, and at some point, Samuel's going to tell David what's going on, you know, and the, the concept about it. But David's such a humble person that even though he knows he's been anointed king, he awaits until God gives him the kingdom. He doesn't go take it. He, he apparently didn't hear what Benjamin Franklin said when he said, God helps those who help themselves. Because David, he just waited. When God wants me to be king, I'll be king. I don't have to self-promote. I don't have to make it happen. I just wait for the Lord to do his work. He's anointed me. Look what the scripture says. He was anointed. He took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. What's the next phrase? And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Everything David needs... To be successful in the eyes of the Lord in leading his people, God gave him that moment when he poured that oil out symbolizing what took place that nobody could see. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So Samuel arose and he went to Ramah. Samuel bails, but look at the very next verse. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So you have this picture of God's anointing. Now when the Lord anointed Saul, the Bible says, and the Spirit came upon him the same way it did with David. The same power to be the man that God had called him to be was available to him. He just never used it. When 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 Paul would talk in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about the children of Israel, he would say, all of them passed through the Red Sea. All of them were fed by the manna. All of them saw the pillar of fire and the cloud that led them. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Because they had all that they needed. But they were unwilling to apprehend it, to receive it, to accept it, to take it, to choose to follow the Lord, to choose to be who God wants him to be. So the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. The Spirit of God left him, and as the Spirit of God left Saul, so did the hand of God's protection upon him. When the hand of God's protection is no longer upon the enemy is free to do whatever he wants to do. And God knows it. Well, listen, Paul said it like this. When we have a brother who's caught in a trespass or sin, but he doesn't want to hear about it, he doesn't want to turn, he doesn't repent, he says, then turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved. What's he talking about? He's saying, put him outside of the, of the fellowship of the church. Put him outside and, and let him run down that road where the devil intends to destroy him, but God is going to use that to what? Save his soul. Sometimes we got to go through the things we go through so that we can understand or, or, or grasp what God has for us. Well, let me ask you this. How many of us today have learned an enduring lesson from the Lord through pleasure? How many of us have learned an enduring lesson from the Lord through pain? 
Because God whispers in the pleasure, but he shouts in the pain. That's how we're made. That's how we are. That's the way we are. That's how God is able to reach through. So Saul is going to have a distressing spirit. God is sovereign. This verse teaches God's sovereignty. The distressing spirit could not touch Saul without God's permission. Agreed? The, the, the spirit, the, the enemy of our souls, the devil, could not touch Job without God saying, Have you considered my servant Job? Without the Lord giving him the go. That's why I say nothing can enter into our life that does not pass through the hands of a God who is willing to die for us. What enters into our life passes through His hands. We're believers. Nothing comes without His approval. And so if it has His approval, it may be hard, but it will be good for our good. In his glory. Well, the distressing spirit comes upon him. And so Saul is going to, for the rest of his time, have this issue. This distressing spirit. Whatever it is. Whatever, however it reveals itself in his life. But listen. Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. I find that kind of interesting. You see anything interesting in that? I mean, here they are looking at Saul. Saul's maybe got a bad attitude now. A little cranky. You know, throwing spears at people, you know, little things. And so they say, well, surely a distressing spirit from the Lord is upon you. I don't know. I find that interesting when I look at it. So they say in verse 16, let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it will be when he plays it with his hand, when the the distressing spirit from God is upon you, you shall be well. You know what I love about the Bible? The Bible doesn't lie to make itself sound better. So here these guys are giving Saul some worldly wisdom. Hey, you're struggling with this distressing spirit, you know, and, and they acknowledge God is the most high God. Nothing can come into our life except God allows it. So ultimately this distressing spirit is from God. So what you need is some mellow tunes to just help you, you know, Make things better. Just need some mellow tunes. He doesn't call for the death metal guys. I don't know of any of them playing harps yet. It's possible. I'm not saying it's, they, they might not. Maybe they do. I have to ask my son. He could tell me. But the idea here is, hey, we, we need a guy skillful with the harp. And when he plays, that'll take care of it. Well, in this situation, it was true. And it says, so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now, if you look through this section of scripture over and over again, you're going to hear this same phrase. Skillfully played. Someone who can play well. Someone who has a gift. In essence, is what they're saying. A gift for music. Well, God had this man chose long before Saul ever became king. God knew who it was. At the time, he was singing songs to sheep playing his harp before the Lord. Nobody really thought much of him, but there he was, God's man. And then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I saw a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. Now listen to what they say. Skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a handsome person, But the most important phrase is the last one. And the Lord is with him. Now, certainly Samuel and Jesse were not seeing David the same way this guy did. Do you think? I mean, if if Jesse saw his son as a mighty man of valor, a man of war, and and, uh, efficient or proficient in his speech... And all of these things, a skillful player of the harp, surely he would have invited him to the most important dinner of the family's life. But he didn't see his son that way. What this man is seeing is the effect of that last phrase. The last phrase is, and the Lord was with him. And because the Lord was with him, 
he saw all this other stuff in David. Without the Lord being with us, we just are what we are. Some of us think a little highly of, more highly of ourselves than others may. But the result is the same. Jesus said, Unless you are attached to the vine, what can you do? Without me, you can do nothing. But Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4, All things are possible, aren't they? Through Christ who strengthens me. All things are possible. Everything's different when you have a life submitted to God. When your life is submitted to God, the whole realm opens up to what God can do through you. Jesse said of David, ah, it's just a little shepherd boy. But the little shepherd boy anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit, what has happened? We're in the same chapter. Now he's a mighty man of valor? Where did that come from? He's a shepherd boy. He has done nothing but the sheep. Goliath doesn't come till the next chapter. He hasn't had that victory yet. But this is how the, this is how this guy sees him when the Holy Spirit is upon him, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a handsome person. The most important thing, the Lord is with him. What did Saul really need? Did he really need a guy who could play skillfully on the harp? Or did he need somebody that the Lord was with? Because the Lord wasn't with Saul anymore. And Saul's best friend, Samuel, who had kind of brought him along and taught him what it was to be the king, wouldn't come around anymore because he, Saul, had rejected the Lord from being his leader. And what he really needed in his life was someone that had the Lord with him. That's what was necessary for him. And so this is the way they see David now. This is the way they see him, filled with the, the power and the presence of God. So therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. See, nothing's changed yet. Samuel anointed David, and what did, what did Jesse do? You know, son, you're probably set for great things. So get back out there with the sheep. You know where you're supposed to be. He's still with the sheep. The king is calling for him now, but he's still with the sheep. He's still the shepherd boy. And Jesse took a donkey and loaded it with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by his son, David, to Saul. So Jesse, hearing that the king of Israel wants his son, fills a, a donkey up, you know, with all kind of nice gifts for Saul and sends it out. Here, take this to, take this to Saul. Take all these things. So David came to Saul and stood before him and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Now, I want you to remember that phrase, because in the next couple of chapters, it becomes evident that the way that the world loves is a whole lot different than the way God loves. Saul loved David, but he's going to try to pin his body to the wall with a spear. David loved God. You know what I find interesting about that story? Of Saul trying to pin David to the wall with a spear. David who had killed his ten thousands. David who's a mighty man of valor. Skilled in the art of war. Prudent in speech. He didn't pull the spear out and show Saul how to do it. He could have took the spear out of the wall and plunged it into the chest of King Saul. Couldn't he? But he just ducked. Got out of the way says, the Lord rebuke you. I don't need to take matters into my own hands. God knows what he's doing. If this spear is coming at me, I'll duck. I'll move, but I'm not throwing it back. I'm not getting involved in spear throwing. Sometimes we have a lot of spear throwing in Christian circles, don't we? Somebody throws a spear at me, by, by golly, I'm going to throw it back at them. Don't they know what they just started? But David was a man after God's own heart. He was able. 
But he cared more about how it looked to the Lord. So David, who loved the Lord, the scripture says Saul loved David, but that's how he treated him. David, who loved the Lord, treated the king who wanted to kill him better than the king treated him when he said he loved him. David would not touch God's anointed. He would not touch Saul until God took him off the throne. He wouldn't touch him. Well, Scripture says he arrives. uh, um, Saul loved him. And so he said in verse 22, Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So here's the deal. What, what we won't understand from this, but you get a little bit clearer picture when we get to chapter 17. David still doesn't stop being the shepherd boy. What this means is Saul says, I want your son to come to me whenever I feel this stress, this distressing spirit, I'm going to send for him. And however long that takes for the message to get, you know, they didn't have email. He didn't text him. He sent a messenger to tell Jesse, I need your son. And Jesse would go get his son from the sheep and send him to Saul. And he would come to Saul and play. He's not yet permanently before Saul. We'll see that occur a little bit later in the story as David continues to to find favor in the eyes of God and before men. But he finds that favor before men because he finds that favor before God first. He honors the Lord. That's his focus. Well, it says then in verse 23, And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would would take a harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Here's what I see. He becomes well because a man after God's own heart is in his presence, worshiping God. And that distressing spirit doesn't find any place it can hang out when that's going on. Because God's there. The spirit is there. God's anointed is in the room. And as we look at this story and as we continue to develop this concept of David being the man after God's own heart and the king and a picture and the forerunner really of the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, the the son of God who is the real king of kings and lord of lords, who David is a picture of. An example, as we look at that and as we grasp it, I hope that the main thing that we can pull away from it all in the victory and the defeat and the struggles that David's going to have is simply that concept that he cared more about how it looked to his Father in heaven than he cared about how everybody else was going to receive it. His relationship with God mattered more to him. And to me, that's the essence of being a man after God's own heart. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was still the same, wasn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time. We can study your word. We can come before you. We can just ask God that you would move among us, through us, in us, in a mighty way, Lord. We just thank you for the story of David and and Saul and the way, Lord, that you lay it out for us, that we can see you can start well, but how are you going to finish? We need to finish because we finish in the Spirit and not in the power of our flesh. We need to walk by the Spirit, not in the power of our flesh. We need to walk in faith, not by sight. We need to be men and women who are more concerned with pleasing you than we are with everything else. We need to place you in that rightful place where we can truly say, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Lord, I just pray, God, as we come before you, that we would recognize that truly what you are looking for from us is broken men and women. When Jeremiah was called to go to the potter's house, the pot was marred in the potter's hands. So he reformed it in a way that seemed right to him. 
we are all pots before our master potter. And He can reform us. When we are broken before Him, He can make us whole. He can make us ready to be and to do what God's called us to do. For not many wise or noble, but He uses the weak things to confound the wise and the strong. He uses, Lord God, people like us. Father, we ask that you would just move in a mighty way among us. God, that our eyes and ears would be open to allow you to move and work in our life. And that we would just submit ourselves to you, Lord, in a desire to just love you. With everything that we have, that we would place you in that rightful place in our life. God, we just want to give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close out in a time of worship. We invite you to worship with us. Outside, we got some uh, goodies, I think, around the...